From the protests to the polls, Iraqis are heading to the ballot box in less than a week, and it's a direct result of activist efforts. They want an end to corruption and better public services. Some activists may even run in the upcoming vote. And there are more female candidates than ever. But as the parliamentary election inches closer, a lot of Iraqis are wondering whether it can actually deliver on the changes they're asking for and whether it can withstand international influence, especially from the U.S. and Iran. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To get a sense of what to expect in the upcoming vote, we called on Imran Khan, a senior correspondent for Al Jazeera based in Doha. I'm headed to Iraq for the elections uh, fairly shortly. Uh, we're going to go to Baghdad, Erbil, and Mosul. So uh, it's going to be fascinating because this is, a, as you know, it's like a very important election for lots of reasons. Imran, what goes into the prep for covering a story like Iraq's elections? Well, uh, about 11 years of already doing it. Uh, the most important thing is to try and keep up with all of the changes because every single election, um, there have been changes in electoral law, which allows different people to run. You have to understand the Iraqi parliamentary democracy system, everybody votes for the member of parliament, and then the members of parliament all get together and vote for the prime minister. Imran says that's led to weak leadership in the past. There were simply prime ministers that all the parties could agree on. And there's always kind of shifting movements and people grouping together. So there's lots of shifting alliances that you need to keep uh, abreast of. What are you most excited about in deploying and covering this story? I'm more excited about being outside of Baghdad. I think, particularly for foreign media, Baghdad becomes the focus for so much. And I think we're doing a disservice when we just concentrate on Baghdad because Iraq's a very good place with very different people. So I'm very excited to go down to Mosul because there's still a lot of anger in Mosul about the slow pace of reconstruction post the war with ISIL. And remember, Mosul was one of the capital cities for the Islamic State, or the capital city, rather, for the Islamic State. So it was destroyed. The old city is almost completely destroyed. So there's a lot of anger there. And I want to go and find out whether that anger is going to translate into a boycott or want to queues around the corner for the voting booths. I'm very excited to be in Erbil to figure out what the Kurds are going to do. Kurdistan had a referendum where they voted that they wanted to leave the state of Iraq and set up an independent state. Ethnic Kurds in northern Iraq voted 93.4% in favour of independence for the semi-autonomous region. But the referendum wasn't recognised by the Iraqi government or the United States. An independent state hasn't happened, but that still plays on their mind. So yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to being outside of Baghdad and seeing how ordinary Iraqis look at the capital city and the, the concentration of the political system within the capital city. So this election that Iraq is preparing for was supposed to happen in 2022. Why was it moved earlier? That is a massive success for the October 2019 protest movement. 60% of Iraq's population is under 25. They're calling simply for their country to function, for basic services to work, for government accountability and an end to corruption. That movement, for me, is one of the key defining moments of, of 
modern-day contemporary Iraq. Because you had a group of protesters that were firstly leaderless. No real leaders ever emerged from that protest movement. They were just very angry young people who were fed up and wanted change. The protesters are not holding anything in their hands except for Iraqi flags. They're calling for the most basic of rights, employment and services. The authorities are building prisons only. They're not building hospitals or schools. The second thing is their age. They were young people. This is a, a generation that doesn't remember Saddam Hussein, that barely remembers the US-led invasion and occupation of Iraq. But what they do remember and what they've been brought up with is mismanagement, corruption, lack of opportunities. First, we want a country. Second, we want all of them out. No one should stay. They are all thieves. They keep seeing the politicians around them get richer and richer. The corruption infestation has affected this country, and I feel sorry for it. It's everywhere, public and private. It's become normal. Whereas in their homes, they can't even get electricity for more than three or four hours a day. It's really hard to eliminate this corruption. It needs to begin with judicial reform, and the rule of law needs to be enforced from high elected officials all the way down. They have no opportunities. They can't go to college. There's no jobs out there. And the only way they can get a job is if they align themselves to a particular political party. So there was a lot of frustration, and it boiled over and into the streets. We need a government that will be just to the people, that will end unemployment, that will end ignorance, not increase corruption. We need a government that will hold the corrupt accountable. I always remember being in Iraq for the initial protest. People came out into Tahrir Square in central Baghdad. And then suddenly, over the next few months, it became an almost permanent fixture. Tents were put up, people were giving out food. There was almost really oddly for a protest movement. It was almost like a carnival-like atmosphere at times. And young people were driving all of this. And they managed to make significant political change. And the key thing that they did was forcing the election to come a year early. Mustafa al-Khadami, the, the prime minister, had to listen to this group of young people because their voice was so loud. So that, for me, is just incredible because that voice has so often been lost in Iraq. And I think it's a real success of the protest movement. This election has been brought forward by a year. Those protests were billed as the biggest in Iraq since the U.S.-led invasion. And they became known as Tishreen, or the October movement, after the month that they kicked off. Yep. Can you remind us how the security forces responded to the protests at the time? The very early days, they responded with light fire and with bullets. And then as the protests got bigger and bigger, they pushed the protesters into the middle and then surrounded them. And then every time protesters went up to the security forces, they would use light fire, they would use tear gas. They would use water cannon to try and disperse the protesters, try and contain them. But that was just in Baghdad. In the south, in other places like that, there were much more brutal tactics where the security forces actually went in to try and clear people. And that's where lots of people died, hundreds, in fact, in the south during that movement. So it, it got pretty brutal for significant chunks of time over the protest movement between October 2019 and early 2020.
One concrete result of the 2019 protests was this new electoral law that expands the number of districts and it should allow for better representation. It also allocates a quota of parliamentary seats for women. So every voting district will pick at least one female member of parliament. And so perhaps because of this, we've seen a surge of female candidates, about 30 percent of the ballot pool. This year, Iraqis will have an unprecedented number of women to choose from as they vote for the country's next National Assembly. What are some of the issues that female candidates specifically have been raising? What will they face? For Iraqi women, the issues are much more about security and safety out in the streets, much more about opportunities being given to them, much more about being in control of their own destiny and not being under the umbrella of their tribe or their fathers or their husbands to get much more independence. And they're doing that. And they've always been doing that. A lot of women would be anonymous online, but absolutely vocal and very public in their profile. They were putting out controversial issues. Now, the difference is, for the first time, they're allowed to do it politically. So, for example, there were women's protest movements, there were women activists, there were women speakers. Now, they're allowed to run for parliament. And the hope is that within the inside of parliament, they'll be able to change things. And that's, I think, the most significant movement that we'll see in this election. We'll see a lot more women come into parliament. So speaking of people coming into parliament, there's also buzz about activists and protesters taking on a new role, and that role could involve entering government. So what do you know about that? Well, I think we've got to be really careful here because the protest movement and the activists aren't united. A lot of them are split over whether they should indeed take part in the election or not. There is a significant wave within the protest movement, and I use this term very generally because there isn't a protest movement going on right now. It's the people that were involved in the October 2019 movement. What they're saying is that elections don't change anything. So why should we vote? More than 40 protest movements and political parties have announced the formation of an opposition front to boycott the upcoming parliamentary election in Iraq. You have to remember, Iraq is a democracy in the Middle East. It's a proper parliamentary democracy. People can go out to vote. The problem here is, for many younger Iraqis, is people vote either by sect or by political affiliation. So there's a vote bank that political parties can rely on. The protesters say, actually, until that changes, until we're allowed to vote for anybody that we want, we're just going to see the same old people in power. Then you have the others who, you know, effectively saying, we forced an early election. We did that by being out in the streets, and therefore we need to vote. So the protest movement is far from united when it comes to all of this stuff. But it's a significant change in that they might be running with traditional political parties. They might be running as independents, and that's a new change in the law. But what they're doing is actually taking part, even by boycotting the election, they're taking part in the political process. Whether that translates into actual votes and parliamentary seats, we'll have to wait till the election results come out. But I think that's significant. Taking into account what you said, of course, this is not a united group. What are some activists hoping to change within the system once elected? Structural reform. Too many political parties control too many individual ministries like electricity, oil, water, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, 
the Interior Ministry, and you have to be a member of their political party to be able to get a government job. That needs to go. The corruption that they say is rampant in the Iraqi system, and we've covered corruption several times on Al Jazeera, it does exist. In 2018, Imran reported that many Iraqi businessmen and farmers felt like they needed to bribe government officials if they wanted to get any contracts. He also interviewed members of Iraq's Parliamentary Transparency Commission, which said that $320 billion had gone missing in the previous 15 years because of government corruption. We're also looking at construction. Iraq needs more electricity power stations. It's very basic, simple things that they want to see changed. They're not looking for a completely different parliamentary democracy or a presidential-style democracy or an overhauling of the political system. They see the political system as it could work if there were politicians who wanted to make change. So a lot of the protesters who are running, whether they're running independently or with a major political party, want that. They want to make change from within. And for those who are considering boycotting, how have they expressed that they hope to change the system, if not through elections? Well, I mean, they're not taking part in the elections, so that's an interesting one. I've been trying to figure out how big the boycotts are going to be. If the boycotts are big enough, then the independents running aren't going to get the votes that they need to get in. But there's a religious component to this as well, which is quite important. The Marja'iyah, Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani, who's the highest Shia Muslim authority in Iraq, if he says go out and vote, people will go out and vote. And if he says don't go out and vote, people will stay at home. So you have to understand that the protesters, they have different loyalties to different people and they'll listen to somebody like Sistani. So The boycott may not happen in the way we think it's going to happen. It may actually change in the run-up to the election because people may realize that actually this is our only chance for change. But there's a number of very powerful figures that could also get involved and either encourage people to vote or not. Hmm. It's interesting because that seems to be happening across the board, including with Muqtada al-Sadr's party, who announced that they would boycott the vote and then change their minds and now will not be boycotting the vote. But Can you run us through who the usual suspects are? Who are some of the more established (laughs) parties that are running? Well, let's begin with the one you started with. Let's begin with the Southerist movement. Muqtad al-Sadr, who's a key Iraqi Shia leader, is a very powerful, very charismatic figure. He is interesting because he's always put Iraq first. He says, I'm Iraqi, I'm not Iranian-backed. His political party won 54 seats in 2018. They were the biggest faction. And again... You need those votes to be able to influence who the prime minister is going to be. So you've got the Southerners. Next up is the Fatah Alliance, which is a coalition of relative newcomers. An interesting change from the last election, the Iranian-backed militia groups were allowed to run. So the Hashd al-Shabi, who were the guys that were on the front line fighting the Islamic State and defeating them, Mm. are allowed to run as political parties. They are very definitely, some of them, backed by Iran. They're Iran's very powerful ally in Iraq. And these guys have a lot of respect because they are fighters that defeated the Islamic State. They're also heavily armed. And so that gives them a lot of power on the streets. Imran mentioned a few smaller Shia alliances, led by leaders like former Prime Minister Haizar al-Abadi or cleric Amar al-Hakim. And then there are the Kurds from the north of the country, 
As Imran mentioned, the Kurdish region of Iraq has been pushing for full autonomy. And there are two main parties there, the PUK and KDP. Those guys are often at loggerheads with each other over Kurdish issues, but they will come together when it comes to fighting with Baghdad over oil revenues, over money and things like that. So although they are rivals, they unite. And lastly, of this very long list, the Sunni groups in the western Anbar province. The Sunni groups are really interesting because under Saddam Hussein, the Sunnis, although a minority, had a huge amount of power. So there's been a period of adjustment since the fall of Saddam Hussein. And the political parties haven't been as active. They've been a bit destroyed. Now they're forming together and becoming much more involved in the political scene. But they are very local. They are very much about rebuilding Fallujah, Ramadi and Ambar province, about roads, schools, hospitals. And they tend to stay out of the more radical end of Iraqi politics. Mm. So those are the main groups, I think. (laughs) So many. So how do international politics come into play here? Because we've mentioned some of the parties are Iran-backed. And there's also the influence of the U.S. The U.S. and Iran have often been accused of using Iraq as a proxy battlefield. Donald Trump took it to the most extreme example when he assassinated key Iranian leaders in Iraq. A dramatic escalation of tensions in the Middle East. A U.S. airstrike has killed Iran's most important military commander. U.S. President Donald Trump had ordered this strike inside Iraq that has killed a commander of Iran's elite Quds force, Qasem Soleimani. The American role, a lot of the senior Shia politicians are dead set against. They want the Americans out in any capacity. They don't even want advisors uh, to the military being in Iraq. Others are a bit more pragmatic. Sunni groups are very much in favor of having U.S. forces on the ground because they feel that it protects them. So you have that, like, anger at the U.S., and then you have Iran and some of the groups backed by Iran, and then you have a lot of the protest movement who are fed up with the role of Iran. Activists have repeatedly blamed Iran-linked armed groups, which wield considerable influence in Iraq. Young men and women have come to the streets to protest against government corruption and the meddling of both America and Iran inside their country. But as long as Iran has groups that are aligned with it and backed by it, like the Fatah Alliance, then they will have a say in the country. It's the same way the U.S. are involved um, in Iraq as well. I mean, a lot of Iraqis will tell you they should leave. But realpolitik and the amount of money Iran and the U.S. are spending means that they do have a role to play. So every election is more or less a referendum on the government and how it's addressing people's needs. And there was a lot of hope pinned on this one as a way to fix the problems that were raised by the October 2019 movement. Do you think that there's still hope that will happen, that this new government, whatever it is and whoever is made up of, will be able to address the people's needs? I'm in danger of giving you a personal opinion here, and I'm going to. Yeah, um, <laughs> go for it. You've been there for um, a very long time. Yeah. The way the Iraqi political system is set up is it's set up as, like I say, a factional sectarian political system that has people voting for it because that's who they've always voted for and they come from those communities. So what happens is the status quo remains. 
No one's building electricity stations. No one's getting the revenues from oil and gas and putting them uh, to good use. No one's building schools, roads, hospitals that Iraq does need as well. No one is addressing the needs of future generations. It's all really short-term thinking because no one's strong enough to say, I have a 50-year plan. Everybody's got a four-year plan because that's how long an election lasts. And without that, without that kind of vision and a vision being put in place, I think what's going to happen is what we've seen last couple of cycles of elections. You'll get a weak prime minister and the problems will remain the same. Finally, what do you want an international audience to know about this story? What do you think people don't get right about Iraq? I think firstly and foremostly, people really need to understand that the war in Iraq, the US-led invasion and occupation, was by most measures illegal. And the evidence simply wasn't there that they were stockpiling weapons of mass destruction, and indeed none were ever found. But that shaped Iraq's future to where here we are, post-2003, in the year 2021, where Iraq's problems have got worse, not better because of that invasion. And I think that's the kind of thing that I think they should understand. But more importantly than that, I think players, international players, the US and and Britain and the Western powers, also need to to take responsibility for their actions and what their actions have led to. And that requires the international audience knowing what's going on in Iraq right now and what the situation is. And that's The Take. Before we go, some good news to share. The Take and yours truly have won an award for Best News Podcast Host at the 46th Annual Gracie Awards. They recognize excellence in media created by, for, and about women. And you can join the celebration. Tune in for the virtual event tomorrow, October 5th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 23 GMT on Facebook at All Women in Media. We'll share a link on our social accounts at AJ The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tobey, with Dina Kispe, Ruby Zaman, Nagin Odiai, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Aya Elmilek is the team's engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is the Take story editor, and Stacey Samuel is executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>